You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Rated PG-13. Hey, are you listening to this episode because you love old school NWA and WCW? Well, if you haven't already, you've got to go check out StarCast.com because StarCast 4 is coming to Baltimore. That's right. Horseman country. And we're bringing hell with us, man. We've got old school WCW. How about Sting in the red, white, and blue for the first time in decades? Of course, he beat Ric Flair for the world title back at Great American Bash 1990. And he was wearing that famous red, white, and blue jacket that they've made action figures of. Of course, you remember he had the stars and stripe face paint. He's breaking it out for the first time ever for a photo op, and he'll even have the original world title that he won that night from Ric Flair. You can only get this photo op at StarCast, and of course, our main man, Arn Anderson, will be there. Lots of other Hall of Famers, too, like Ron Simmons, Ricky Steamboat, Lex Luger, on and on, but lots of fun gimmicks from that early era, too. Guys like Johnny B. Bad, even Van Hammer, and how about the Ding Dongs? That's right, the Ding Dongs. What about RoboCop? There's so much fun stuff planned for StarCast. You don't want to miss out. Be a part of it. Join us in Baltimore. StarCast.com. That's S-T-A-R-R-C-A-S-T.com. StarCast.com. Man, it's like fantasy camp for wrestling fans. Check it out. StarCast.com. It's next month, November 7th through the 10th. Most of the action's going down that Friday and Saturday. Friday will be loaded with old school and some AEW talent. And Saturday, man, it's all about tradition and paying homage to Baltimore. It's one of the great wrestling cities for the NWA and World Championship Wrestling. Check it out, starcast.com. You'll be glad you did. Thompson, and you're listening to Arn right here on Westwood One with the Enforcer, the founder of the Four Horsemen, the Hall of Famer, Arn Anderson himself. Arn, how are you, man? I'm great. Week three, we are proceeding to get into a gallop here a little bit, right? No, we are, man. People are really digging what we're doing. I've gotten incredible feedback from both week one and week two. And this week, we tried something different. Rather than you and I picking the topic, we let the fans pick the topic. We put it to a vote on Twitter. And if you're not following us already, what are you waiting for? Follow us on Twitter at The Arn Show. And had you done that last week, you would have been able to vote. And you would have been able to pick what we're talking about. And, of course, the fans voted in almost an overwhelming fashion. They wanted to hear about the famous My Spot promo from 1997. When we posted this poll, were you surprised? or shocked or was this uh about what you expected when the poll results came down 
I didn't know what to expect, to be honest with you. Uh, I knew this was something that that a lot of people over the years have came up to me and said that, that they'll never forget where they were. You know, it's like almost like when they shot JFK, for God's sakes, when they heard that and, you know, what they were doing and what they felt. And, and I get it. It was the most real thing that's ever happened to me since I've been on this earth. Well, of course, we're going to talk about that promo that went down on August 24th, 1997. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about what led to it and then the fallout in the coming weeks. And you know what that includes, but what's on the coming weeks here on the Arn show is fall brawl, 1995. That's what we'll talk about next week. When finally Arn Anderson and Ric Flair face off and not just anywhere, but live on pay-per-view and, uh, the following week we'll do a hashtag ask Arn anything. If you'd like to ask Arn a question about fall brawl 95 or ask Arn anything, follow us on Twitter at the Arn show. And we should mention before we get rolling here, Arn, that people are really loving all the shirts over at arnshirts.com. We just rolled out the emotions of Arn. And, uh, I'm curious, you and I didn't talk about that before it became a t-shirt. What do you think of that shirt where it's got your photo many times with your different, uh, sort of feelings and emotions underneath, like angry, happy, sad, sleepy, cheerful, confused, excited, proud, frustrated. But interestingly enough, it's kind of all the same face. Well, that's what you say. (laughs) Now to the naked eye, like myself, you look at each one of those pictures and they're all completely different. They're all varying in, uh, in reaction. They're varying in, I guess, poly emotion. You just got to look a little bit closer and realize that each one is a picture unto itself. And it is giving you a little bit of look through the window into my soul. Well, so check it out. If you haven't already Arnshirts.com. you'll also see an exclusive four horseman shirt. Arrive, spine buster, leave. Maybe my favorite shirt, toot toot. And I won't spoil it. You got to go see this shirt for real. But in episode one, we talked about another gimmick once upon a time that Mr. Anderson had, Super Olympia. We've got a couple of variations of that. And we got lots of feedback about you explaining what the sort of old school wrestler handshake meant. And you said it was about respect. We've got a shirt dedicated to that. And a couple of interesting shirts that sort of have an AEW slant on them with the uh, black and gold and. Of course, AEW was the talk of the wrestling business last week. You and I haven't talked about that. Did you get a chance to catch the show on Wednesday on TNT? And if so, what'd you think? Absolutely. I was as excited as anybody. I had no idea what was going on in the show. No idea about the content. So I just sat back and watched as a fan and I thought it was terrific. I thought they had a, a home run and uh, man, it was cool. Really was. Well, if you haven't already, go check it out. Orangeshirts.com. I'm telling you, you're going to dig what we've got there. And we hope you dig what we're doing this week as we visit the My Spot promo from August of 1997. Let's talk about what led to this. There's um, a lot of rumor and innuendo out there about this, but the best I can tell, the last time we saw you on a major show in the ring was uh, Halloween Havoc 1996. And It's been written that the day before that show, which went down at MGM grand in Las Vegas, you went to the gold's gym, grabbed a pair of dumbbells and realized, uh, Houston, we have a problem. Tell me about that. Is that true? What do you remember about that? 
I'll never forget it. Uh, let me just say that this would be the third time actually in my career that I had suffered something to do with my neck. First uh, instance was bit when I was with the WWF, which would have probably been in 1989 sometime. I, I actually, Tully and I were wrestling the Rockers, and I got hung up on a what's called a victory roll, and my head didn't get tucked, and uh, I broke my neck for the first time. So I worked completely through that. Now I'm talking, it's a cracked vertebrae, it's qualifies as a broke neck i uh, never missed any time off work but man it was a long road back and i rehabbed that back then when i got back to wcw working with the steiners myself and Oli, another issue with my neck that was a three-month recovery too so this time we're talking about in 1996 before halloween havoc i was very familiar that my neck was on a downhill whatever I'm looking uh, it was it was getting worse and worse and worse and I just suffered through the pain daily it was a bad neck all day every day and it was just lesser levels so I went to the gym out in Vegas getting ready for the show the next day I walk in grab a couple of little bitty light dumbbells I don't even think there were 30s they might have been 20s I was just gonna just warm up my shoulders and so I grabbed it it just rolled out of my hand my left hand and I'm standing there with one dumbbell in my hand. I went, whoa, hold on. What in the hell? Reached down, grabbed the dumbbell again, and I couldn't hold it. <clears throat> I knew something was very, very bad. So I go over to a chest press machine, sit down, just put a little weight on there. I'm just, just going to warm up here, start to press it off. It slid right out of my hand, uh, the grip. Tried it again, same thing. Now your mind takes over. Now it's like, oh, I don't feel hurt, but I'm hurt. This is first thing. Uh, this has never happened before. The two previous times my neck was tore up. Didn't affect the grip in my hand. So I go out to the car. I go back to my room. Uh, I'm sitting there wondering, what in the hell am I going to do here? What am I going to do? What am I going to do? Well, obviously, that was a long, sleepless night. I get down to the arena, have the trainer take a look at me. He thinks it's a real bad pinch nerve. We go with a pinch nerve. Okay, I'm going to wrestle irregardless, but let's just say it's a pinch nerve. And that and that's where we left it for that day. When you, I'm curious, when you go to the gym that day, are you solo? Is Rick with you? Do you have a training partner? Uh, no, I was by myself that time. So when you, which, get which I, I did, I did that a lot. I mean, I would go train by myself because with the job that I had, you know, I was already being an agent, you know, and wrestling too. So if I could steal an hour and a half, I had to steal it when I could. And I didn't want anybody to be waiting on me scheduling wise. You know what I mean? It was one of those deals. Whoop, I got an hour and a half here. I'm going to dart out the door and go train. So I was by myself. So when you get back to the hotel and you realize, Hey, uh, I'm not in good shape. Do you keep that to yourself? Are you telling anybody Are you expressing concern or is it just you? And then the first person you tell is the trainer the next time. Yeah, it's just me. Um, I didn't tell my wife. I didn't tell anybody. I just 
I looked at it as being okay. The first time I cracked my neck, I had a lot of uh, atrophy in my bicep occur. Second time I cracked my neck, now on the other side, my shoulders starting to atrophy, my triceps starting to atrophy. I went, okay, this is just another crack, chink in the armor. I figured, okay, this time's going to be, you know, some grip in my hand. It'll come back. We get the nerve unpinched. However, we can do that, do some therapy, and, and I'll be fine. So you wrestle the next day against uh, Lex Luger. You submit to the torture rack at Halloween Havoc. Any memories of that match you want to mention? Uh, I was too consumed you know, with my grip and, and not dropping legs or letting something slide off on a reversal and losing my grip or putting him in danger, having me do something that looks stupid. I was more concerned with that than anything. I don't even remember the match to be perfectly honest with you. As we keep it moving, it's been written that, uh, you're trying to, uh, sort of soldier on. And at some point, and maybe early, late 96, early 97, you guys have a series of tapings at Disney. And I think it's Eric Bischoff. He's talked about this on 83 weeks. He notices that uh, as you're lacing your boots, you're having issues with your left hand. And he's the one who pushes you to go get checked. What do you remember about that? Is that true or, or, or is that just uh, fiction after the fact? No, that's, that's absolutely true. Um, I happened to be, I don't know if Eric came in the room where I was dressing or I just, you know, he just happened to be coming with through the locker room. I don't know what the circumstances were, but I was really having a dexterity issue with my thumb and my first finger. They were shutting down. Well, just look at your hand right now and you take your thumb and you take your first finger out and now figure out how you're going to button a button. Right with that, with that second finger and, and no help from your thumb. I was having a problem getting the eyelets, you know, through my boots to get them lacing up. And it's really become an issue. It was almost comical. Um, and Eric looked at me and he goes, Arn, what's the matter with you? What's wrong? And I said, well, I just said something, you know, along the lines. Well, I, you know, I've just been having some issues with my neck and now it's really causing my you know, a grip issue. I think I just got a pinched nerve and, and he kind of looked at me and said, well, take your boots off. You're not going to work today. Need you to go see the trainer, get, get an update on this. So he pretty much shut it down right there. Let's talk a little bit about that because I think some of our listeners may think, well, gosh, why wouldn't you have done that beforehand? But what they may not know is sort of the wrestler mentality and, and not just the wrestler mentality, the mindset within the business. Uh, explain to them why you wouldn't have, you know, back in October, as soon as you realized, uh, uh Oh, I'm in trouble here, gone and, and told the office and, and, and ran a, a battery of tests. W- what was the, what was the delay? What was the holdup? Why didn't you do that right then? Well, um, different mentality in those days, you know, uh, positioning in a company and positioning on a card and, more so just your position with, with the company that you work for, that you're durable and trustworthy and you're not accident prone and always on time, always do what's asked of you. All those things are, it's like a resume that you wanted to build for yourself. I know I did. Um, and you didn't tell people when you were winged up or dinged up, you know, because being hurt, 
it's very different than being injured. There are two different animals. We, we get hurt all the time. We stay hurt. Hurt is a, it's the norm instead of the exception. Um, being injured is something different. You cannot disguise being injured, but you tried, you know, there were some of us that even though we had guaranteed contracts at this point in time, hadn't always been that way. And when I first started and for the largest part of the, oh gosh, I guess about the five or six years I was in the business, you didn't work, you didn't get paid. And if you got hurt too much, (laughs) guess what? He's accident prone and you were gone. It was very much a different era where guys were very concerned about forgive what we're talking about right now. Cause I know we're getting to a promo, but they didn't want to lose their spot, you know, their spot on the card, their spot on the paydays. And if, if you were looked at as less than reliable or injury prone or whatever the case may be, uh, then your income and your ability to provide for your family may be in jeopardy. Fair to say. Correct. So. The other interesting thing that's going on here in WCW in this era is you've got guys who, uh, well, they're missing dates pretty regular. You know, it's in this same era where, uh, guys would be advertised for house shows and then not show up and, and quote unquote, pull up lame. And as a result, house show business started to dwindle and, you know, an old timer might say, well, they started to kill the town because they couldn't deliver what was promoted. And the talent is blamed for a lot of that right or wrong, because it's being said that they weren't willing to, uh, sort of fight through this stuff where maybe a generation or every generation prior to did, because this is the first era where they do have guaranteed contracts where whether they showed up or they didn't, they got paid the same, but I don't imagine that that ever crossed your mind. Never crossed my mind because I wasn't one of those high dollar guys that was making a million dollars plus per year. And, um, I also had a responsibility because I was at this time, I would already become one of the agents. So not only was I wrestling, wrestling in a top spot most of the time, not all the time, but most of the time up and down, um, but I had a lot of responsibilities with the company and you just don't take off for a broke finger. You don't take off for 10 or 12 stitches in the back of the head. You just didn't. It just was one of those things that, uh, I wasn't trying to be a hard ass. God knows I'm not the toughest son of a bitch in the world. You know, if you don't believe it, watch me stomp my big toe in the middle of the night. Sometime it gets pretty <laughs> ugly, <laughs> you know, but I have a responsibility to my employer <clears throat> And, uh, protecting my job and protecting my family all in the same breath. Talk to us a little bit about how you became an agent, because I am curious when and how and why that may have happened for years and years. You've just been quote unquote, one of the boys. Now you're going to sort of try to wear two hats. Were you interested in that position because you felt like it was an opportunity to secure your future? Was it more pay or did you realize, Hey man, uh, this hourglass may be running out here and I need to just make sure that, uh, I got something to sort of fall back on. How does that come together? Whose idea was it? Just carry me through that process. Well, it was Rick. When Rick was booking, when you're a booker, you like to surround yourself with people you trust and people that you kind of share their views of the business. The successful ones do. I think it's like you, you, you know, a head coach comes in, he brings in all of his assistant coaches with him. 
you know, it's pretty much uh, you start off clean. So Kevin Sullivan uh, was already in place, you know, helping Rick write write the shows and helping him book. I guess he might have his initial reason would be, you know, he knew I was pretty good finish guy, knew I was reliable. He knew he knew how I felt about the business. He knew what kind of businessman I was, and um, you know, that's just adding me to his staff. And we weren't overwhelmed at that particular time running house shows. So I had time during the week to go to the office and, and sit in the meetings and and help out. And then that's how it came about. And it just kind of uh, stabilized that one day when you're through wrestling, you may have something to fall back on, which would be this full time. Well, Aaron, over the last couple of weeks, everybody's been talking about the show. And one of the things they're talking about is, uh, your original spine buster, man, you were, you were breaking it out behind closed doors and now you're sharing the secret. Of course, we're talking about bluechew.com. And if you're looking to give yourself a little performance enhancement, well, that's the way to do it. You can last a few extra rounds at bluechew.com and uh, put on a five-star match as Dave Meltzer might say. We're talking about the world's first chewable that has the same active ingredients as both Niagara and Cialis. Now, here's why a chewable makes sense. It works faster, and you can take it on a full or empty stomach, but maybe best of all, it's cheaper than the other two because you get to skip the in-person doctor's visits. You just go to bluechew.com right now. You'll get set up with a bluechew.com affiliated physician, and they'll help you find the right dosage and the right active ingredient for you. And if you're qualifying, you'll be prescribed very quickly. And then you get to skip the awkward conversation at the pharmacy. Instead, it shows up in a discreet package at your front door. And then you're ready to give your gimmick the hot tag, man. It's made right here in the US of A. And how about this? You can even try it for free. That's right. Free at bluechew.com. When you use our promo code ARN, all you've got to do is cover the $5 shipping. ARNBlueChew.com. It's the real deal, isn't it, man? You know what it is, and look here, I've always been a problem solver. Would you agree? I would agree. Okay, and so for all you cowboys that are out there, or even the guys that think they're a cowboy because they wear a cowboy hat, you got that uncomfortable situation, you walk in a room, you know you're not supposed to have your hat on, you look around, there's a couple grandmas going, boy, get that hat off your head. Well, you look around, there ain't nowhere to hang that hat. If you'd have had one of them blue chews and you'd have had a full pump in that gimmick, you could have just took that hat, looked down, and dropped it right there. It would have stayed perfectly. Problem solved. The human hat rack. Just a little food for thought. Check it out. Bluechew.com. Arn loves it. You will too. It's bluechew.com. Use that promo code ARN and you get your first shipment for free. Just pay $5 shipping. Do you remember about when that would have happened when you started to wear both hats as both a wrestler and an agent? Was that 94, 95, 96? I'm thinking that's in, um, well, it was, it was whenever Rick was booking. What was that? 95? Yeah, probably 94, maybe 95. I think 95, somewhere in there. And, um, you know, when, when, uh, he decided to vacate that job, we were kind of left behind and, uh, Kevin and I, but, but still in that role, you know, uh, for when, 
we walked into the uh, Bischoff era. We were kind of already in place, left over from from when Rick was booking. One of the things I wanted to ask you about, it was written uh, that uh, you saw a chiropractor and after consulting some mental, medical experts, uh, they decided the only option was to have surgery. And it was written that you had surgery in late 96 on your uh, third, fourth, and fifth cervical bones and a fusion of the seventh cervical and first first uh boy i'm not i'm just gonna skip that word either way you had surgery on your neck and, and it's written that that happened in late 96 and uh you would be back into uh, the hospital in early early 97 with symptoms akin to cardiac arrest but you and i talked about this off air and you said that those reports were not completely accurate what can you clear up for us on that well uh the first report about 96, me being in the hospital for weeks and having a surgery and all that stuff is horseshit. I don't know where that came from. That never happened. Uh, the first time I was ever uh, in the hospital for any length of time. Now, like I said, the first two times I told you that I, I went to add, you know, a battery of tests and stuff, which was a one day in, and we decided we're going to rehab it back. That would be. Uh, 89, probably 91, but this time 97 is when, uh, uh, I had the surgery and I was in there eight days during that time. Uh, I contracted, uh, pneumonia and it didn't take long. It was like a couple days in I had pneumonia and, um, the nurse is saying, hey, uh, we got to get you up and get you walking. Well, let me tell you about that surgery. Um, in the time that this all occurred and I had the surgery, I had a pretty thick neck by design. You know, I always trained my neck. Mentality, wrestler mentality was you had a big thick neck. It would help protect you, you know, because you're always getting dropped on your head or or almost getting dropped on your head, so you needed a big, thick neck. Well, when we went into surgery, that worked against you because in those days they went through the back, not through the front. Um, and I don't know how to describe this is, and make it as serious as what it was, but when I woke up, I heard a, my doctor, my physician, the surgeon, say something that I never dreamed I would ever hear come out of a doctor for obvious reasons. I woke up, <clears throat> I looked up, and about four or five inches from my face was my doctor's face, and he went, Mr. Lundy, I know I've hurt you. But when I went, went in there, there was a lot more damage than I had any idea about it, and I had to you know, cut you pretty deep because you got a big, thick neck. So... Whatever uh, medications, whatever we have in this hospital is yours, just ask. Doctors don't say, I know I've hurt you. I think there's some culpability and liability there, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I've never heard a doctor say that ever. I never even heard of anybody hearing of a doctor saying that. Right. You know? And, buddy, they weren't kidding. It felt like, well, I mean, there's a seven-inch scar on my neck. They pretty much filleted me in the back. They, I think what they did was cut my head off, take out what was damaged, and sew my head back on. Because that's the way it felt like to me. 
And uh, this nurse comes in about two days in, and she goes, you know, you're you're, you're developing pneumonia. We got to get you up and get you walking. Well, <clears throat> bullshit. She started cranking that bed up, man, and it felt like somebody with the strength of, uh, you know, Braun Strowman or something just took a knife and sliced the back of my neck and was now has taken those big paws of his and just ripping my neck open. That's what it felt like when they started cranking that bed up. Uh, I got nothing to compare to. A red-hot poker, maybe, cattle prod in the back of the neck might be something to compare to, and I got a pretty good threshold for pain. Buddy, it nothing that had ever happened to me could scratch the surface of what I was going through. Unbearable. And she just started to crank up, and I started screaming, and we stopped it right there. And, uh, you know, the nurse was a hard ass. I know she was trying to do her job and trying to help me, and she said, okay, I'll let this be it for today, but by tomorrow you've got to be up and you've got to be walking. Well... Her shift ended, somebody came in again, and they started cranking the bed up. And, and my, by cranking it up, I'm saying to like a setting up position, which was causing the weight of my arms to pull down on the incision. Mm. And uh, if you could picture that, and uh, I, all I could think to do was just hug myself. You know, it was like, okay, well, I, I hugged myself, and it took a little bit of the pressure off, but man, it was... It was so acute and so sharp and so burning the pain. I just, I wish I had a dictionary, which was a little more educated that I could explain to everyone listening out there just how serious this was. And I'm sure I am screaming and hollering and sweating. Um, the next, next day, next shift comes on and they say, you've got pneumonia. We got to get you up, get you walking. And it was a gentleman this time. It was a male nurse. And he started to crank that bed up, and I looked at him. I just asked what his name was. I said, please, you're hurting me. Please do not crank that bed up. He stopped. He looked at the sheet, I guess, on what the meds were that they were giving me. And I, I never have had a large threshold to downers or any of that stuff. That was not my bag. Never took uh, Valium or any of that that bullshit. So he goes, I'm going to try something different. So he gave me two Valium, two blue Valium, I guess, they're 10 milligrams a piece, and uh, a Percocet all in one time. He says, I want to try this, drink this, washed it down. <clears throat> he said, I'll be back and see you in a little bit. He came back in about an hour and a half. Well, it was easing off. I guess I don't know what that combination was, but it was it eased off the pain enough that he got me cranked up and got my legs over the side of the bed. And that was step one. And he said to me, I said, yesterday, this would not have been possible. So whatever you gave me is at least helping us. But I can't stand up. There's no way. He said, I know that. Well, it's as far as we're going to go. I'll be back in, see you later tonight. I'm going to come back, ask to come back, you know, on a later shift. That evening, he at least got me standing, progressed to the next time he was working, I think, which would have been the next afternoon he came in, and we actually got one or two steps, and it just progressed from there. And he took over my care, and I, and I give that gentleman 
the credit for possibly saving my life. Just wow. knowing what to give me, how to be slow with me. And, uh, you know, because all he sees is this big wrestler laying there who claims he's such a badass all these years that he's been watching on TV and how tough I was and all that bullshit <laughs> reduced to just a, a damn bag of uh, bag of crying and a bag of feeling sorry for myself. And to be honest with you, uh, I want to kill myself. Let's talk about the surgery. This is April of 97. Is that right? Do I have the timeline, right? Yeah. 97 is great. I don't know where the 96 stuff came from. When you are going in for the surgery, do they tell you ahead of time? Now, just so you know, Arn, before we do this, this is the end of your career. You're never going to wrestle again. Nothing like that. And, and I don't know if. I don't know if that, you know, I didn't have a personal relationship with the surgeon. He was just someone that was brought in to do the surgery because that was his field. Um, but they, there was never a conversation of, of that being it. As a matter of fact, in my, you know, mind, I thought, listen, I've rehabbed this back a couple times on my own. Now, if they're going to do surgery, shit, I should be better than ever. That's how naive I was. Right. Well, you know, it's, it's sounds like a very painful surgery. And, uh, I mean, you've said that <coughs> even here, you, you wanted to die. I mean, this is the worst post pain op ever. And it's been written that it's so bad that you told your wife to get the money man there because you wanted to talk to him about getting things in order because you were content to just check out for real. Hmm. Before the male nurse took over, I was in such pain and I was thrashing. Now, I found this out from my wife, who was there the entire time, just about. I'm probably just sitting over in the corner, you know, horrified. She said I thrashed so bad back and forth while I was out, you know, which was most of the time or incoherent, that uh, they had to change the sheets a dozen times from me sweating on them. You know, I dropped about, I want to say I dropped about 20 pounds in uh, eight days. And it was just from sweating and thrashing and all that. But I was coherent enough, like on that that second day and in such in incredible pain, I was going to get my, my financial advisor up there who happened to be a friend of mine. He can go nameless. I'm sure he don't want his name brought up in this, but... Uh, you know, I told him, I said, you know, I got a, I got a 38 in there. It's loaded. It's got hollow points in it. I want you to bring up my, you know, whatever paperwork I need to sign over to Aaron. Now, Aaron's not hearing any of this conversation, obviously. Uh, and I said, bring that 38 with you because I can't stand it. I can't stand another hour of it. I need you to, to get up here and let's get this resolved. Well, he looks at me and goes, well, well, we'll talk about this later. And, and I think it got pretty heated after that. I said, no, I'm not asking you to do this. I'm just, I'm telling you to do this. Uh, if you've ever done anything for me, you know, I've put a lot of faith in you do something for me, you know, bring the papers, whatever I need to sign, sign over everything to her and, uh, bring that pistol. So a little bit later, um, he leaves, um, and I start having these, these, I guess they would be epiphanies. 
of not seeing my children grow up, my children being grown and them having children and the grief I would have put on my wife by being this selfish, you know, and it, then it, that word just kind of went to the forefront. You know, why are you being so damn selfish? You're, yeah, okay, kill yourself. Now what do you leave behind? A broken family, a destroyed family? You know, you don't have more balls than that to get out of this freaking bed? You know, get the fuck up. And it, and now this little person is on the other side of my shoulder, and they're beating that into my head, and the other one's going, yeah, but God Almighty, it hurts like nothing before. You know, don't you want to quit hurting? And there was this ongoing battle back and forth with only thing I can figure is good and evil and heaven and hell. You know, we're going at it uh, with me being the prize. And um, I had a change of heart. I found out it was about 12 hours later than I had talked to Bob. Bob left and never came back, obviously, as you can imagine. Well, now it's out of the, it's out of the bag of Bob Blackburn is who it was, a friend of mine. Um, very good friend of mine. He was family. He was also my financial advisor. And he just said, piss on this. I'm not going back up there. Um, and then he saw I had a change of heart. He came up just as a friend, no paperwork, no gun. Thank God. Um, and we started on a, a different uh, path to recovery, starting off with the mental aspect of it. It's uh, it's just hard to imagine what's going through your mind, you know, when all of this is happening. And, you know, through the grace of God, a lot of patience and uh, a patient wife, you, you make it through this and you get through, um, you know, all of the recovery. And I imagine that was a long, tedious process. What did your, what did your physical therapy look like on the other side of this? Once you're discharged from the hospital? Well, I know he's out there somewhere. I hope he is. I don't know if he's passed or not. Before we go forward, I just want to say, and as much as anyone else in the medical field, forget, you know, my wife, she's my rock. You know, I can't put enough value on what she did for me, but that male nurse, wherever he is out there, deserves every bit of the credit, good or bad, for me still being on this earth. And I just want to say thanks to him before we move forward. Sure. So now, what was the question again? What Sorry. Does, you know, what did physical therapy look like? You know, once you're released oh. from the hospital, it's not like you're just ready to start running the ropes. You, you've got a long road ahead of you after, you know, being filleted like this, right. as you said. Yeah, it was, uh, it was about a month before I could get back to the gym because once I got out of the hospital, I mean, I really started ground zero. It was, it was a question of uh, like the first week of rehab was just me being able to get up and walk from the bed to the wall in my bedroom. And it wasn't that big. It's not like a Conrad palatial home we're talking about here. <laughs> oh, whatever. <laughs> this is a, this is the, uh, Conrad Thompson starter kit when he was about four or five years old. You know what I'm saying? About 1600 square feet over. So I'm walking from the bed to the wall, touching the wall, back to the bed, sit back down, lay back down. That was the beginning of rehab. It started at ground zero. And we graduated from me being able to go back and forth to the wall to out to the living room and sitting up for an hour. 
And then it built from there to getting out of bed by myself. Now, this whole time, I'm, if you can picture it, bear hugging myself and tilting my upper body back as I walked. So that kept the the weight of my arms, if you left them hanging at your side, pulling on that incision. Can you picture that in your head? Yeah. Okay. Um, I guess to the naked eye, if you were sitting in the living room and I came around the corner, here is some guy that's doing a limbo dance through the living room. You know the, what those limbo dances are where you bend backwards and kind of hop through underneath the pole. Is that, is that the right word I'm looking for? Yeah. Limbo? Yeah. That had to be pretty preposterous if you were sitting in there wondering, well, God, there he comes. What's he doing the limbo? But it's the only way I could be comfortable. Um, and it built up to finally a month later, I, I'm back to the gym. That started out with one plate on uh, the like the chest press machine, literally, ten pounds, and uh, just did machines. And ever since uh, that hand shut down that day and Halloween havoc, I've not been able to do dumbbells because my grip is still the shits. Um, but I just use machines. I. I became totally uh, dependent on machines. It just made made it where I could work out, and I literally started with uh, you know just walking around and eyeballing different machines. It wasn't even about if they were in the body part I was training that day. I was just do what I could do on that day to get through the workout. So from here, you know, you, you, are you're figuring out how to work out, but is wrestling even still in your mind or have you sort of resigned yourself to this point that, Hey man, that ain't going to happen. I'm just, I'm just going to be an agent. Or do you think at this point, Hey, I'm trying to be positive. It might not be like it once was, but I can still make it work. That's all I thought about getting back in shape to wrestle. Never one time did I think I would not be wrestling. I did think this is going to take a lot longer than anything else had. And to be honest with you, you go into a a self-pity mode, and then you go into a mode, well, you know what? I broke my neck twice. I was back at work in three months. Nobody else did that, you know? If I have to remind them of that, I will. I hope I don't have to, but this is probably going to take longer, you know? It may take six months. But some guys in those days, you know, jammed their thumb. They were out three months. So, you know, I, I wasn't worried about that, but there was never a day that I wasn't working towards wrestling again. It wasn't in my mind that, oh, you can fall back on your, your job as an agent or any of that stuff. I was a wrestler. What It's what I did. I was 37 years old. I was not, even though, you know, people say all the time, which is funny, I was born 47. So... <laughs> God knows how old I looked at this particular point in time. But the fact was, I was 37 years old. I still had another, I'm going to say another 10 years. You know, you just have to work smarter and, you know, limit some of the things that you used to do. You just have to pick your spots on all that. But I I plan on coming back and being a wrestler. Well, and we know that, <laughs> uh, you know, that that's not exactly going to be the way it plays out. Let's talk about a week prior uh, to that famous promo on Nitro. We've got the NWO, of course, running roughshod. 
And, uh, there's some interaction with main Gene Okerlund doing a promo with Kurt and Ric Flair and Flair's bragging about Kurt B becoming a horseman. And, uh, Kurt saying, no, I've just agreed to team with Flair at the clash. I haven't quite yet agreed to be a horseman. And, um, Kurt saying he's looking for competition, but he's hesitant to commit to the horseman. And as the promo is ending, as the guys are walking up the aisle, you see Rick, like, what are you talking about? We, we already talked about this. You're going to be a horseman. And later in that same show, Rick would beat six of the NWO, Sean Waltman, uh, by DQ at five minutes and 40 seconds. He has six and a figure four. And at that point, sort of the B squad of the NWO comes out, Vincent buff Bagwell, Scott Norton. Kurt runs in to make the save and the NWO, uh, decides to, uh, flee the main event. Let's see diamond Dallas page and Lex Luger on one side, Scott Hall and Kevin Nash on the other. Eventually page makes the hot tag to Lex Luger about 13 and a half minutes into the match. Gets a huge ovation. And that brings the entire NWO to charge the ring and prompt the DQ. And then giant and flair would run to the ring and join the fight. And there is some. Uh, NWO versus horseman involvement as flair and six, once again, are getting involved at the end of the show. You're not really on this show a week out from this famous promo, the my spot promo, you're still doing agenting duties. Do you know at this point, I might not be able to make it or, or when do you know, because I believe Bischoff has said that, um, the day of that nitro where you do the famous promo is where you told him, when did you know, Hey, I can't do this anymore. Did you know a week prior at that nitro? Uh, yeah, I don't remember the exact time frame. It was a few days before I was due to go back to television. Um, and the conversation prior, prior to this, you know, not knowing, you know, when I was going to be back, you know, but me still saying I was going to be back and the office, I think, thinking I was going to be back, uh, we had to fill that spot and that spot, you know, we all kind of kicked it around legitimately, you know, Rick, myself and, and everybody, you know, who would you want to have, you know, be in the horseman, not take my spot, but in addition to myself, you know. Kurt Henning has always been a world-class performer, always, and he's funny as hell. He would have been a perfect fit. He really would have. He would have been a perfect fit to be a horseman. And and there was some conversation about that, um, but I think it was just, you know, they were just kind of seeing where it would land, and nothing was etched in stone. But about three or four days before I was supposed to go back to TV, a guy does. He comes up to me. I'm sitting there drinking a bottle of water, and he, he doesn't know. He just knows he hadn't seen me at the gym in a few months and kind of smacks me on the back and goes, hey, double A, where you been? And, man, it was like somebody just just stuck me with that cattle prod again in the back. And... uh my God, that bottle fell out of my hand, and it was like, whew, that voice, there's that voice again, you're done. No doubt about it. You're done. And now the clear head takes over and goes, this little bitty piss ant just slapped me in the back and got that big of a reaction. It's going to happen when I get slammed or suplexed or belly to belly or one of those things. And you're having this conversation in your head again. And I knew 
right then, clear as a bell, it was just deadpan voice, you're done. It's over. You can't fix this one. So we had uh, we had a couple of uh, days of uh, kind of talking to the wife and uh, seeing you getting her input. And uh, we decided I was going to go down and, uh, you know, at TV and let Eric know that, you know, I wasn't going to be able to wrestle anymore. So we're going to have that conversation. And I wonder, since it was so fresh and uh, all these voices were going on in my head, one of them saying, you got a chance to say goodbye and it not be a work, it not be bullshit, it not be an angle. You know you're done. Your your family knows you're done. Let's just let the world know and see if they got time for, to, for me to have a promo and retire. So to be clear, the uh, the fellow who slaps you on the back at the gym, that happens in Charlotte. Uh, you're not quite out the town yet. I think uh, the Nitro we're talking about that we're headed towards is actually in South Carolina. So that wasn't a flight. That was just a drive for you, right? Yep. All right, so... You get to the night show the next day. Uh, I imagine call time is early afternoon. Uh, I've, I was never backstage at a nitro. You, you were backstage at raw, you know, every week for almost decades. How different, what, how different was it backstage uh, at a WCW event in 1997 compared to say WWE in a more modern era like today? Mm-hmm. Well, there wasn't the, um, mass overproducing that goes on at a WWE event, you know, backstage or all SmackDown. Um, everybody was still kind of in charge of, of the content of their promos and, and their matches and all that stuff. It wasn't micromanaged. Um, and when I get there, I immediately go and I, and I get talked to Rick and I say, you know, I think we should pull the trigger on the Kurt thing. I'm not going to be able to, I'm not going to make it back. And I know he's thinking my bullshit, but I said, I've got kind of the makings of a, a goodbye. You know, it wasn't a promo to me. It never was a a promo. It never became a promo. It never was supposed to be a promo. It was just me going out and just thanking everybody for, you know, all the fans that had helped me live a, a childhood dream and, and a adult male dream. They had, you know, but it and now had abruptly come to an end and I just wanted to say thank you. And that that's kinda all I had in my head as a rough draft going out there. And I asked Eric, you know, do you mind if I go out and especially if we're gonna put Kurt in that spot and I think at that particular time we everyone was still on board with making Kurt a horseman. He said, okay. I said, well, how much time can I have? And he said, you know, I trust you. Take whatever time you need. And he really did. And he smiled at me and he walked off. So at this point, we think uh, Kurt's going to be a horseman. And uh, Rick's maybe not so sure that you're really done. And obviously, he's an optimist. He thinks you're going to be able to figure out a way to fix this. Um Eric's going to give you the time. Do you go talk to anybody else beforehand? Do you go sit down with Kurt before you make this promo? Or is this all just shooting from the hip for the first time when we saw it? on? Um, I talked to Kurt and, um, 
I just said, you know, I, I got something in my head, I, you know, and I'm, I won't have it till I get out there. But, uh, you know, if you'll just play off of me um, and just accept, you know, just, you know, uh, be a horseman, you know, let, let this be another another deal in your life. Because on a shoot, we had talked about it and he said, yeah, I'd love to be with you guys. Holy shit. <laughs> you know, I like to have fun. You guys like to have fun. You guys. You know, the work rate, everything. It was all perfect fit. And uh, that's really the only broad strokes that I gave him is, is we'll bring you down and uh, and we'll, if you'll just play off of what I got at the time because I really don't have it verbatim right now in my head and I'm not going to go out there with it verbatim in my head. And he said, sure, I'll just play off of you. And um, most people have always – wondered hey was that scripted somebody write that for you or did you write that for yourself did you you know did you rehearse it i went through that curtain with the the broad strokes that we just have talked about and uh that's it and it just came to me and the emotion was so real because it was true it was 100 percent accurate i knew i wouldn't be back in six months or six years or you know, people in this business, they retire all the time. It's an angle. They, um, you know, it's time to move on from a particular company and a company will retire them or whatever. And they'll pop up six months later somewhere else. I knew this was it. And it was the only time I would ever retire. It would be legitimate and it would be from now on. And 37 years old, that's a hard pill to swallow. But, uh, I had the I had grips on it, and uh, I'd pretty much resolved myself to it was over. And uh, you get out there, and thank God, Rick was kind of off to the side, and I couldn't see his face. And I was able to pull it off um, and just wing the whole thing. Don't ask me how, but it just it was kind of those voices that had been battling inside my head back and forth called a truce and said, "Okay, you know what." Why don't we just help him get through this? We're gonna and uh, then we'll t- go ahead. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I was just gonna say we're gonna play that promo for everybody in just a moment. But I do want to know you've got uh, a pair of boys, and your youngest boy may have been too young to really know what was going on. But did you have a conversation with your oldest boy before you went to the ring and retired? I mean, he was pro- you were probably his favorite wrestler, right? <sighs> I doubt that. Um, <laughs> he would have preferred someone that won every now and then. <laughs> you know, it's fun. It's funny. He's uh, he he's you know him and Charlotte grew up together. Charlotte Flair and uh, they were best buddies up at the time. They're probably fifteen, sixteen years old. And uh, you know, we never sat down and had you know any conversation about, you know, what do you think about what I'm doing? How did, you know, did you like the match tonight? Did you not like it? He just kind of enjoyed the trappings of getting to travel quite a bit, but it was just an everyday thing. You know, Hey, hey his dad was Arn Anderson. His uncle was Ric Flair. No big deal. And, uh, you know, we didn't have a conversation about me retiring. Matter of fact, no one was with me. It's 90 miles from the house, but this was something I had to do by myself. I didn't have the family with me down there that night, and that was on purpose. Um, I did call Erin after it was over, and she was pretty emotional, and 
I was pretty emotional and, uh, thank God when it was over, um, went backstage. That's when things really got hard. Well, we'll, uh, we'll talk about, I'll talk about that in a minute, but first let's let everybody hear what you said in the ring that night. It's a pleasure to hold a microphone, Mr. Anderson, up for you on this occasion. Eugene, all I can tell you, to get a response like this means what I got to say tonight mean that much more. You see, I'm a realist, and everybody knows I've got average size and speed and average ability, but I've parlayed that into what I would call a very successful career. And I did that on sheer will alone. But another reality is, four months ago, they took four vertebrae out of my neck. Consequently, I'm left with a hand, my left hand, too weak to hold a glass, too weak to button a button. But I thought in my mind, I knew in my mind I could overcome that too, through sheer will. And I was doing just like that. I think I've come back a long way. But the other day I had something happen in the gym that was like a cold slap in the face of reality. A guy about your size, Gene, came up and he slapped me on the back and he said, Double A, where you been? We hadn't seen you on TV. And just that slap sent a jolt through me and I dropped the water I was drinking and just for a second my system shut down and it became crystal clear as I watched the few little drops of water draining out of that bottle the symbolism that was involved. It was like someone had turned an hourglass over and the sand was running out on the career of Arn Anderson. Now the fact of the matter is, not only do I put myself in a suicide situation by trying to wrestle again, I endanger these two men's careers and I respect them too much for that. And other than be anything than the enforcer In my best friend's eyes, I'd rather walk away. And for all you people out there that have ever bought a ticket to see Arn Anderson wrestle, whether you love me or you hated me, you knew that when that bell rang, you got all I had that night. Whether I won, whether I lost, I gave you everything I had. And you knew that. And when you did this to me, that was your acknowledgement. Well, the fact is, I got nothing left to give. And I want you to remember me as I was, not as I am. But being the man that I am, my last act, formerly as a horseman, I got one last challenge. And that's to you, Kurt Henning. Now don't misunderstand me, it's not for a fight. You got something special. I've seen you in this ring, your skills, your maturity, your commitment to excellence makes you something special. And what my challenge is to you, Kurt, is stand beside my best friend, Ric Flair, and lead these two men back to the glory and the prominence that the four horsemen once had And I'm going to tell you what your prize is. It's not a spot with the horseman. Because this is worth a lot more than that to me. I'm going to give you the only thing I got left. 
not a spot, not a spot, I'll give you my spot. Wow, Kurt Hennig. You know, I know every wrestler has ever been around or involved in this business we call wrestling who would pass up the honor to not only be a horseman, but to come out and take Arn Anderson's spot as the enforcer of the Four Horsemen, I have only one thing to say. It would be a privilege. Hey, what about that? I think we made Buck finally. Tony, Bobby, history in the making. New member of the Four Horsemen officially tonight, Kurt Henning. It's obviously a pretty emotional promo. Uh, you called it not a promo. It's from the heart. Uh, Flair would say, you know, later it was real. And, uh, Flair would reference that when you went backstage, uh, Eric Bischoff said to him, oh God, what, what great TV and Flair would be adamant. It wasn't TV. It was a real life situation. And he, he referenced the fact that sting was touched by what had happened in the ring. When you come back through and you see guys like sting and dusty roads, these guys had been up and down the road with you, your entire career. What's the reaction backstage when you come back through that curtain and everybody saw what you had to say? Well, that's another one of those things that I don't remember everything that was said. It was kind of a blur, but I do the sting thing really stood out. I mean, he and I were friends over the years and, uh, very respectful of each other. And, you know, I saw the guy come from nothing and turn himself into a, you know, with a lot of help, but turned himself into a world-renowned megastar. And uh, he's one of the first people I saw coming through the curtain. And he came up, and he had tears in his eyes, and he hugged my neck. And I think he said, you know, I've been here for the whole thing. And it was almost, and I, that was about all he could get out. But it was, it was plenty. You know, it spoke volumes. And, uh one or two other people came up and, and, and hugged my neck. But, you know, it's funny. When you're at TV and you're producing TV, you got your own stuff in your head and you got your own stuff going on, everybody doesn't watch every match and everybody doesn't watch every promo and everybody does, you know, they're just thinking, well, it's just another promo. What the hell? Because I didn't go around and tell everybody, hey, this is my last day wrestling or any of that because I was still going to be working for the company. It wasn't like... I was going around spilling a doomsday prophecy for myself to everybody. A lot of people just thought it was another promo and another night, and uh, they're doing some kind of angle. Okay, you know, whatever it's going to be. So uh, Eric said, hey, if you want to get out of here, I know it's been one of those nights for you. You can go ahead and get out of here and go home, which I, I took him up on, and I did. I got out of there. You said earlier you're, you're glad that Rick wasn't right in front of you, that he was sort of off to the side and behind you. He's very emotional during the promo. Um, when you watch the tape back and you see your best friend at the time getting super choked up and emotional as you sort of pour your heart out here, what are you thinking when you see how touched and emotional he was at the time? Well, I'm thinking if he only knew. And that was Rick being emotional. And I'm sure, 100% sure, in the back of his mind, he's going, well, shit, he's going to overcome this. He always has. He'll get through this. You know, give him another six months of working out, and he'll be good to go. 
I know Rick, you know? So that emotion was just <clears throat> that I was having to go through the setback I was going through. If he'd have really known that that was it, we would never be in the ring as partners again. We would never be in the ring, <clears throat> you know, supporting each other or work one of us being on the floor supporting the other. That was all done. My God, can you imagine the emotional state he would have been in? Because Rick is an emotional guy, and he wears his heart on his sleeve. And uh, I don't think he truly believed it, and I don't think anybody else believed it. Because in the old days, nobody went and had a surgery, and that was it. They came back some former form of themselves, whether it was 70% of themselves or 80% of themselves. But... Nobody had a surgery and just disappeared off the planet. It never happened, you know, anything that I could think of. So I thought I was coming back until the thing happened in the gym, and then it was crystal clear I wasn't. But nobody else was privy to that situation happening until I laid it out there in Columbia that night. That's the reason that was part of my story. When you, uh, when you head home that night, he said, you know, he sort of left the arena afterwards. So you're only 90 minutes from home. No big deal. You're home early. When you get there, is your phone blowing up with guys from the past, whether it's Tully or JJ, or do you think at that point, everybody in the business just sort of assumes, oh, it's a work. He'll be back. Yeah. I didn't have really any of that because I think everybody out there thought, it's an angle. Right. Well, let's talk about that because for better or worse, it sort of felt like it would be an angle the very next week, because here in this promo, as you heard, Kurt accepts the position and he finally becomes a member of the four horsemen. And we know that's not going to last long the next week though, you get the TV and well, when do you find out that the plan is for Kevin Nash to mock the the promo that you did one week prior well i get back still on the buzz of now during the week i do have some phone calls and people are you know my friends that are really my friends that i've kept all along are going and they go you know that was the damnedest promo i've ever heard or my god and yeah, I did yourself or whatever the comments were, they were all really positive. And I'm telling each one of them individually, well, it wasn't a promo. It, it's, it's a shoot, you know? And, um, so that kind of filled the week and I got to the arena and I got some more of that. And then I find out they've got this, this beautiful package that they call me in the truck that they say they want to, you know, Hey, here's a tribute package. And man, I'm, I've never been treated that way in the business. I've never been the guy they singled out to try to make feel special or, you know, be the flagship guy or be the number one guy in the company or, or even if just for a moment, you know, I had never had all that pomp and circumstance around me. So it was a big deal. It really was. Um, and I was very thankful and kind of glowing and, and then I start, you know, hearing, you know, chinks of, okay, well, there's going to be something. They're going to really shoot a heavy-duty angle tonight. But nobody's giving you – they're just bits and pieces. Nobody called and called us in and said, okay, this is what we're going to do. Then you start to hear that NWO is going to do a parody of you, and, and you, you just get a little bit 
you know, it was supposed to be a big surprise. This is going to be a earth shattering deal. And, and, uh, you know, they're kind of kayfabe and the boys and kayfabe and everybody. So you don't know about it until you see it on TV. I know it's going to be something, but I don't know what they didn't. They didn't bring me in and say, okay, Nash is going to go over the top and he's going to, you know, he's going to dress up, you know, and really this over the top stuff. And, and sometime during the day, I don't know who it was. Somebody asked me, says, Hey, you got your cooler in the car. We need to use it for something. Well, I never thought about the cooler. It, you know, I had a cooler in my rent a car, you know, back dating back to the days of me and Bobby Eaton being partners for God's sakes. You know, we liked a cold beer when work was done. No question about that. Um, so I didn't think anything about that, but no one ever called us in and said, how, you know, how heavy this is going to get any of the verbiage, any of that stuff. We just kind of knew they were going to put on some kind of parody and, you know, and that's it. I didn't get any specifics. I didn't get, I wasn't asked, which wasn't up to me. You know, I, there was no, Hey, do you approve of this? How do you feel about this or any of that stuff? None of that ever occurred. That conversation shouldn't have happened. And it wouldn't have happened because, again, I was getting paid to do a job. Whatever they required of me, that's what what I would do. I, I didn't know you couldn't say, you know, you could say no. You know, I, I say that a lot, but I didn't know that you could say no. So did I have a script in front of me knowing what was coming? No, I did not. So, of course, we're talking about a promo that happened on September 1st, 1997, uh, you guys are, uh, in Pensacola, I believe. And, uh, Kevin Nash goes to the ring and he's got some makeup on and he's got some stuffing in his shirt and he's trying to look like Arn Anderson with, uh, the classic glasses and the rest of the NWO is dressed up to sort of mock the look. And he's got a styrofoam cooler, like you would get at a convenience store under his arm. And as you heard Arn say, that was actually Arn's cooler, but he didn't know plan was and uh, Nash says I take care of horseman business but before I go any further let me let all the horsemen here know one thing guys the beers on ice it's pretty ironic that on Labor Day WCW would decide to honor me because anybody who's followed my career knows one thing you were always wondering when I was going to go into labor I sat back that day and I watched the highlight tape of my career and I said to myself you know I'm a guy of average size, average speed, average quickness, average looks, average intelligence, average carpentry skills. But you know what? I parlayed that into a wrestling career that I might say so myself was quite excellent, but you know, something four months ago, I had a neck injury. Subsequently, I lost feeling in my hand, my left hand, the significant of that, that's the hand I opened beer with, but you know something I willed myself back from that injury and I got to the gym. I didn't do anything there. I just walked around, but I got to the gym and you know what? I started to come back, but about a week ago, I went to the neighborhood bar. I bellied up against the bar. Like only I can. And a fat broad, that's right. A fat broad came up and smacked me in the back. And that's that genus, uh, sent a chill down my spine. Same fat broads that have been following the horseman for 20 years. But as I looked at that long neck laying on that cheap industrial gray carpentry, I said to myself, how ironic. That wasn't so much that I was out $3 and 75 cents, 
it was sand ticking through the hourglass and everybody knows. So these are the days of our lives at this point. Are you watching this promo on a monitor in the back? What are you thinking? As you realize he's mocking your career, your, um, drinking habit, your, uh, looks, your injury He's way over the top. As you said, well, you know, let me be the first to admit I've got a drum, which I'm pretty proud of. I got a belly. I got a rotten hairdo. <laughs> God has given me these albatrosses and crosses to bear. Uh, that's no big deal. I don't think it's any big secret. And it's also not a big secret that I like to drink in those days. I didn't drink any more than anybody else. Well, yeah, maybe I did. But that's just because I could drink more than everybody else. I never brought it to work. I never brought it on my job. I never did anything uh, alcohol-wise before I worked. It was always after. I want to make that clear. And it felt like to me... If you really wanted to get heat on this promo, and this is just me structuring it versus the way it was structured, you would have went after the hand. You would have made fun of the hand, something that was very real that everybody could see was paralyzed. And in the old days, hey, being a pretty much a career heel, you know, I believed in getting heat because it sold tickets. My problem with the deal was them leaning so heavily on the alcohol for all the people that might not have known me or the people that thought they knew me. It made me out to just be this complete and total drunk, which was not the case. Um, It didn't venture out anywhere other than just leaning so hard on the alcohol. And that's what my wife said. She said they made you just look like a stupid drunk. Before we get to you talking to Aaron, let me finish the rest of the promo. He said, you know, one thing you can say when Arn Anderson was coming to town, besides the fact that I left a lot of unpaid bar tabs was Arn Anderson was coming to town. And you knew if I was on the card, I was going to give you a hundred percent, no matter how drunk, no matter how hungover I was, I was going to give you all I had. And back in those days before the NWO, you ate people that bought tickets, got one heck of the show. And you know what? As I come out here tonight, I ask you people, don't remember how I used to be. Remember me, how I look right now. And that puts me to you. Wait a second. I don't want to fight you because I ain't won for 20 years. What I got for you is a challenge because as much as I want to be a horseman, I know if I come out here right now, I'd not only put him in danger, I'd also put my best friend in danger and I can't do that. So what I'm doing tonight is I got a challenge for you. I ain't got much to offer you because the beer's already spoken for. But what I do got is a spot, a spot with the four horsemen, not just a spot, not a liver spot, not a spot like your dog spot, not just any spot, but my spot. So I need to know right now, do you accept it? My spot, not a liver spot, not a dog spot, not anybody's spot, my spot to become a four horseman, not my spot, anybody's spot, liver spot, my dog spot, my spot. Total mockery, total burial, and uh, I got to know, are you in Gorilla watching this on a monitor? Are you sitting next to Rick? When when this is going down, 
where are you backstage? How are you seeing this? Who are you with? And what's the reaction of everybody around you? I don't remember what room I was in when I was watching it. Um, but I watched it and, um, like I said, I, you know, them leaning so heavy on the alcohol, you know, it's, I'm okay. What's going through my mind? Well, they've just, the whole thing, every bit of it on Kevin's part was about the booze. So I'm thinking, okay, now the people that don't know me, do they, do they think that's who I am? They think I'm some guy that just drinks all day. You know, the people that do know me are wondering, God, does this guy have a side that we don't know about? You know, because it was so self-centered around the booze. You know, we, we got a few uh, rules or laws or we used to have in this business that we stuck to. Uh, when you're doing a promo, you don't bring people's families into it. You never say fat, oh. too small, too small, old. You don't use any of these, you know, uh, adjectives towards people because guess what? In the end, <clears throat> if these people work there <clears throat> and they are small or they are old or young or they all fat or they washed up or whatever those versions are. When you start saying that there's a pretty good chance that fat guy is going to beat you or that little guy is going to beat you. So how does that make you look? You always on your promos would try to figure out a way to enhance your opponent, to put your opponent over don't talk about his weaknesses, work to his strengths and feature those strengths so that you build a fight, you build a contest. And just burying a guy with one frame of mind in mind, which is the drinking, that's what infuriated me. Not that they, there was an attempt to get heat. You know, you could have sat down and you could have showed a, a, a swiveled up hand that couldn't hold anything. You could have done anything that would have got legitimate heat. I think what you had was like a Saturday night live sketch on TV and those that got it, got it. Those that didn't, didn't, you know, let me just say, hey, been a lot of nights that I probably showed my ass drinking. No question about that. But the fact is, it never entered into my business. It was never part of my business. And they made it part of my business because to the naked eye, you didn't really look at what you're, you know, seeing. You didn't realize at the time, this is just some skit. It's like the company's trying to send a message to a guy. So, you know, you, you have this conversation with, uh, well, I guess I should ask, do you call Aaron while you're still at the building? Or do you talk to her on your way home or uh, later that night? Or do you just talk to her, you know, once you're home? Erin was with me because she's from Pensacola. I got you. And that was an opportunity for us to go see, you know, some friends and family and uh, make it a working trip. So she was there. She was there at the hotel and uh, she was pretty upset. <clears throat> As you could imagine, we had a 12-year-old, and he's going to look at that and start asking questions. You know, you ask earlier if 
if we talked about, you know, matches or wrestling or any of that stuff, that was something that needed to be explained to him. And we did have a conversation about that. Probably one of the only ones we ever had about anything in the business. So how ironic is that? But, uh, she's very, um, Aaron has always been my biggest backer, my best friend, uh, the one person I could get the truth from, you know, when you're the shits, she'll tell you you're the shits or she'll tell me, you know, and when you've been mistreated, she'll tell you that. And it's kind of hard to use the word mistreated towards an adult male that, uh, you know, is more than capable of taking care of his own business, which I am. And I, I was, um, but when it's hurt her feelings and she's looked past, you know, the round, she's not a mark. She knows that we're in the entertainment industry and she knows sometimes you got to make somebody look bad to make them look good after that. You know, she gets it. She gets the whole scenario. She just felt like they just made a fool out of me other than going with, with tried and true methods of getting heat. Because I don't think anybody, <clears throat> and the whole reason to get heat is sell tickets. I don't think anybody walked out of that arena tonight, that night, whether it be wrestling fans, anybody that wasn't involved in the promo, the rest of the crew, that looked at each other and went, boy, that's going to sell a bunch of tickets. All they managed to do was take a very special moment from the previous week <clears throat> and just shed all over it. Let's talk about what Wade Keller wrote. He says the spoofing of Arn Anderson's memorable retirement speech from the August 25th nitro by Kevin Nash, six Marcus Bagwell and Conan on the September 1st nitro stole the show, but it didn't amuse the targets of the satire and thus led to a blow up backstage. Arn Anderson and Ric Flair were livid with some of the areas of the satire that were ventured. In Anderson's case, he said afterwards that his wife and 12-year-old son were upset by the skit. He said his son cried as a result, and his wife was upset that his drinking was made an issue on national television. Flair was reportedly upset with Six's mocking of his dancing and the line, I'm screaming at the top of my lungs, and I don't know why. The feeling within the NWO and by others in WCW towards Flair and Anderson apparently is quote-unquote tough. While some think the skit went too far, others believe it only went too far because Flair and Anderson are open targets and are only sensitive because the skit spoofed some of Flair and Anderson's legitimate insecurities. In any case, the controversy did temper what had already been an all-around strong edition of Nitro, with the tribute being paid to Arn Anderson throughout the entire show with sound bites from various wrestlers. Flair and Anderson were scheduled to appear later on Nitro, but refused to come out and left Nitro early, believing there was no way they could follow that skit and look good. On the flip side, Chris Benoit felt slighted that he wasn't part of the skit. It was talk of a, using a mannequin that looked like Benoit, but it was too heavy and was on wheels, and they wouldn't have been able to get it to the ring over the rampway without making a big production of it. So that's Wade Keller's report. Let's uh, a lot to unpack here. Was Flair upset about the promo? What do you remember him saying about all this? Yeah. I mean, you know, 
I'm, I'm sure he, Rick could give a shit about the dancing and the screaming at the top of his lungs. That's that's all bullshit. He did see that other than being, you know, um, put together or the way it was done or the message it was sending, no one had ever thought, is this going to draw money? That never came into it. This was people entertaining themselves. Now, Kevin Nash has taken credit. I've seen in print about it being his idea. Maybe it was Terry Taylor. We heard, you know, was responsible for it. It was his idea. You know, who knows what, what the idea was, but here, here's the, you know, I go back to business because I've always taken care of business. I've always been a businessman. I've, I've always addressed everything I've done when I'm at work in a business like manner. If it wasn't meant to draw money and there's no place that you can go with it to try to build a program or try to draw money or try to uh, down the road pay this off in some fashion, there was no payoff for this. Why in the hell, here's my question, if you really wanted to draw money with it and you really wanted it to go somewhere, and you wanted this to masterpiece that they felt like they had put together, and uh, since they had destroyed the true masterpiece a week earlier, and I'll just go ahead and say it, even if it is me, because that was real. This was like uh, Saturday Night Live and a bad version of it. Uh, if there was no intent to try to draw money with it, where were all those other guys when this was going on? If you're sitting home and you're watching this and you're watching them, you know, them make fools out of all of us, what kept those guys, the horsemen, from coming through the curtain? And even if they got left laying, make a fight out of it. Let it go somewhere. Let it make sense in the real world. Because in the real world, where are all those guys at? Where was Mongo? Where was Chris Benoit? When all this was going on, they just conveniently weren't in the building. They conveniently were just sitting in the back getting pissed, but not doing anything about it. I don't, you know, if there's not a means to the end, those guys just went out and spent a lot of TV time for their own enjoyment and their own pleasure with no idea of how they were going to draw money off of it. And that's the part that bothered me more than anything. If it's a means to an end, other than just entertaining yourself, then I'll go along with anything. And I had no choice but to go along with that. It was done. And uh, they felt like that was the thing to do. More power to them. It's not who I was. It's not who I am. It's not who I have ever been. I didn't have a paranoia about it. They're saying whoever that was that you talked about, um, who's a Wade Keller. Yeah. He don't know me. He don't know my habits. If if it was intended that that the only reason I got pissed because I am a fall down drunk every night, I wish I, I could get with him and face to face and uh, let's see where he got his information. Um, the drinking part of it. Just because that's if it would have been a little piece and would have been just part of the bigger picture, I could have gave a shit. 
but it was like that was the whole focus of who I was and what was what I was and not the truth. Let me ask, um, is, is his report true that you guys, you and Rick refused to come out later saying it wouldn't make any sense. I guess sort of to your point that if you weren't going to come out and interrupt the parody, why would you come out later and do something else? Be honest with you, Conrad. I don't even remember. So well, here's the one thing I do know. I couldn't have looked at my boss, Eric Bischoff, and said, I'm not going to go out there now because it don't make any sense. If if he really wanted me to go out there, if that conversation, I don't, I don't even remember that happening or that being a part of it, but if it would have been and he would have said, hey, I need you to go out there, then I would have went out there. It's my job. It's what I get paid for. Kevin Nash has uh, talked about this a lot, obviously, in the 20-something years since this has happened, and he said that losing you from wrestling hurt. And he said that a lot of fans didn't realize how good you were on so many levels. And he said it took about an hour and a half to get dressed up for this parody. And as you mentioned, he said it was his idea. Other folks say it was Terry Taylor's idea. Did you ever have a conversation with Kevin Nash or Terry Taylor about this parody and whose idea it was and how it came to be? Or what can you tell us about that? Well, went to Nash's room after we got back from the arena because I wanted to ask him if it was a personal attack, if I had heat with him, if this was, uh, you know, if this was his way to send to me a, not Arn Anderson, but Marty Lundy, a message, you know, and, and Kevin looked me in the eye and he said, no, 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 it's just, we're just trying to get heat. We're just, we're working here. And I believe him. I mean, if Kevin Nash has an issue with with anybody, me included, I'm sure he would just address it directly and man-to-man, and and that was it. But I had to ask because it was so personal in the attack I felt. It wasn't anything standard wrestling. It wasn't anything. Maybe that's why it lasted the test of time. There was so overboard. But I went to his room. Did I have a few beers in my hand? Yes, I did. You know, again, I'm not, I'm never going to say, well, I never drank anything. I didn't drink a dozen beers every night after working out during the day and wrestling at night and have a dozen cold beers. Well, of course I did. There was probably a couple of nights I had two dozen. Not the point. The point is don't bring it into the workplace. And, and I didn't, and they shouldn't have, but It is what it is. So I did have that conversation with Kevin, offered him a couple of the beers, which I think he took. Um, And so I left it behind that day. When we finished our conversation, I put it behind me. I moved on. That was the end of it. And, you know, if we weren't doing this podcast, it probably wouldn't have entered my mind one way or the other and hasn't. For years. Nash has said that, uh, you guys knew what was going to happen beforehand. And it wasn't until the wives got involved and they said that you, uh, were made to look like quote, a bunch of boobs, that there was an issue. And he said that apparently Aaron told you that Nash made you look like a stupid fucking drunk and that 
the only heat that existed was uh, residual heat from the wives. And he says that the cooler was yours. And when you confronted him later at the hotel and asked, as he said, with quote, with like five beers in his hands, Kevin, why'd you do that? He looked down at your hands and just got in the elevator and you told the story that you went to his room. So whether it's getting in an elevator or the room or whatever, still, uh, Nashville's sort of indicated that, Hey, we were just doing art imitating life, but no heat after you guys talked that day. Did you ever have a conversation with, uh, with Terry Taylor about it at all? Um, it came up before I even knew it was Terry's idea. I don't know when it came up, but it was years later. And I mean, a decade later, maybe we were sitting around a room. I don't know if it was a uh, WrestleMania or, Oh, you know what? I think it was, it was like when WrestleMania was in Orlando at the stadium and Terry was working down, um, for NXT and those guys came over obviously to the show. Um, and we're all sitting around a trailer and that came up somehow. I don't know how that came up. Terry looked across the room at me and went, he used to call me reverend because I guess I'd start preaching or whatever the deal was preaching, being bitching, I imagine. But, uh, he said, uh, yeah, sorry about that. Reverend. That was my bad. And I don't remember what my response even was to him, but I knew what he was talking about. I knew it was his idea then. And, you know, it was a half-ass apology, you know, he would have been one of the guys first and foremost back there slapping each other and high-fiving, uh, you know, the NWO when it was over. So it was what it was. Um, my wife was insulted more than me because I got a lot thicker skin. She's a regular human being and a pretty damn good one, to be honest with you. Uh, she's got a kind heart. She also knows this business is that, is entertainment business. Um she, like me, just couldn't figure out that if they want to get heat on me, is that the only thing they're going to do? You know, is that all they got to use, you know, as a tool? And um, it is what it is. It'll be up to the test of time. You know, fans will tell you that's the one thing I love about wrestling fans. They'll tell you when they love something, and, you know, if they love that, they'll go, why are you getting so emotional, aren't you? You're a badass. You did some rotten things. You broke some people's legs. You broke some people's arms. Five of you guys would scrub some guy's face in the cement. What are you getting upset for? Yeah, those were all wrestling angles, and they were all designed to have that baby face kick your ass when it was time, and it was all meant to drop to draw money. This just looked like a Saturday night off the wall skit just to bury a bunch of guys because maybe some of those guys, not even me, had heat with other members of that group. If you read between the lines. Well, let's talk about that. You know, Kevin Nash, obviously a political player backstage in that era of WCW, Scott Hall, more of the same. Ric Flair had been uh, on again, off again, Booker for years. Lots of guys, right or wrong, had said that Blair was hogging up the spotlight for himself and you had defended that with your life at times. Uh, do you assume that maybe some of this was their way to sort of get a dig at Flair as let's go after his best friend and 
this real moment that they had. Let's try to ridicule that and reduce it. Well, it seems a little bit ironic that they featured me on, on, you know, when they were scooping all the dirt out and dropping it on, on all of us, it's like, I got about 25 more shovelfuls than anybody else, you know, but you know, if they want to go back and really be cute about it and, and defend it and they're going to say, well, yeah, but it was your retirement speech that, that started all this. That's what we were making fun of. Okay. If you want to go that route, that's fine. You know, it's, I guess throughout history, and I just, you know, it's something I accepted a long time ago. Rick and I were friends for a long time. We were best friends for a long time. Rick opened doors for me, but I think I paid off, you know, every single time that he suggested me for a role. It, it didn't come across as him taking care of his friend because I was able to carry the mail. And I was able to get it done and whatever he needed done or suggested me for, well, I pulled it off and I pulled my own weight. I think Rick was on top for so long and had so much power in the business with the office over the, you know, long time, which bled well into the WCW days. You know, and I think a lot of people held that against him. Um, a lot of people, you know, got tired of Rick being in that top, top spot. And a lot of young guys, I guess, felt cheated because he was in that top, top spot for so long. And uh, was it a way to get to him through me? Absolutely. Whether or not that's true or not, it doesn't matter, you know, because the fact is I defended Rick over the years uh, because he was a friend to me and that's what friends do. Some of the, you know, innuendos and some of the things that were claimed that, and the careers that were held back because Rick was in the top spot. I don't know about that. It's not my business to know about it. I just defended my friend when the, when the situation came up and, uh, I was always just looked at as, as Rick's second fiddle or whatever you want to call it. That was fine. Um, so who knows what the, what the intentions were. Was it a shotgun blast to get Rick and me and just disguise it as an attack on me? Who knows? You'll have to ask those guys. What's your relationship like with Nash from that point until WCW folds in 2001? Well, I'd always had a great relationship with Nash and, and I don't think I have a bad relationship with him now. We, that night, standing out by his room or by the elevators or wherever it was, we had a, a very short man-to-man -man conversation. I got the answer <clears throat> that that I wanted. Um, the damage was already done, but as long as it wasn't a personal attack on me that they used TV time to perpetrate, hey, it was what it was. <clears throat> it's done. It, it can't be undone. Kevin and I have never had a crossword, and um, I don't hold any grudges about it. Like I said, <clears throat> my career, when it's all said and done, and they put me in the urn, uh, <clears throat> people will determine who and what Arn Anderson was as far as what it meant to them. And uh, 
And what that accomplished that night will also be batted back and forth between the pros and the cons and the NWO fans versus, you know, the Horseman fans. So it is what it is. It's not for me to determine. Um, it'll be up to the the history books and the fans to determine. All right, Armin, need to run a timeout right now. Tell everybody how to save themselves some money. I'm talking about savewithconrad.com. Now, here's the thing. If you have a mortgage, especially a 30-year mortgage, you need to check out savewithconrad.com. We're routinely helping my podcast listeners take their 30-year loan and pay it off in half the time. And I know what you're thinking. Well, I looked at a 15-year loan when I bought my house. I just can't afford the monthly payment. A lot's changed since then. First of all, your house is worth more than it was when you bought it. And secondly, interest rates are lower than when you bought your house. You combine both of those and it creates one heck of an opportunity, especially if you've got other debt. What I want to do is keep your monthly outlay, you know, what you're paying for your bills each month, about the same, but help you get out of debt faster. And we do that by reducing your term and getting you a better interest rate on everything. And oh, by the way, a greater tax deduction. But that's not all. You'll even get to skip your next two house payments. Right now, you wouldn't have a payment due until next year. If you'd like to skip your next two house payments and next year have a better mortgage that gets you out of debt faster, we're talking about cutting years worth of unnecessary house payments off of your loan. Just go to savewithconrad.com right now. You don't need perfect credit. You don't need money out of your pocket. And I know what you're thinking. We're licensed in like 40 states. Why wouldn't you do this? Give your business to somebody you know, man. Listen to me every week, and you'll be working with me at savewithconrad.com. NMLS number 65084, Equal Housing Lender. I do want to finish the story. Uh, 13 days after they do this parody, we have uh, Fall Brawl 1997. And in the main event, it's a War Games match, of course. And on one side, We've got the horsemen and on the other side, we've got the NWO and the horsemen are represented by Ric Flair, Kurt, Mongo McMichael, and Chris Benoit on the NWO side. It's Kevin Nash, six buff Bagwell and Conan. And of course, as many folks remember, this goes down in Winston Salem and Kurt would wind up turning on the horsemen in this match. And afterwards he would smash Rick's head in the cage door, joining the NWO. And you had said that, you know, the reality is you thought Kurt was going to be a horseman. When did you find out? No, it's just going to be a swerve and a way for him to join the NWO. That day, the day it happened. Let me just ask you this. What would have happened long-term as far as the strength of the company if Kurt accepted that role, they went into war games, which the horseman had more experience than anybody. Um, and let's just say the horseman won that night and you gave them, gave the audience that one night, some retribution because pretty much the NWO had dominated WCW for what, a couple years at that point. Yeah. Yeah. At that point they had been on top for well over a year. What would you have thought as a fan if finally they had their day and Kurt got the win and the new horseman thing was not only a good idea of mine, it paid some dividends. Well, now you put them on equal footing. If only for one night with the NWO, you could have probably drawn some money going forward. But when you had 
Kurt turn on the horseman and shove it up their ass. The reason we were going to make Kurt a horseman in the first place is because he wasn't being used worth the damn, to be honest with you. And we thought if we got him with us and we got him in that mix and we got that performance level on TV every week that Kurt had, I mean, he was a fantastic performer. You got him out and got him in that mix, then it would just breathe life into Kurt because he wasn't being used a position worth a shit at the time. That was the intention of it, and it would strengthen up the horseman because if I was if I was coming back, it was going to be a long time, and if I didn't make it back, it would just strengthen their performance level. Let's just say they won that night. You think that might have jumped business a little bit? You think that might have paid a few dividends? And I'm asking you as a fan at that time. No, of course. You know, I mean, the way they did it, uh, Meltzer and other experts have said that this angle effectively killed Winston-Salem for good as a wrestling town for WCW. And the WWE doesn't exactly draw gangbusters there right now either. But uh, Arn and I are looking forward to coming to Winston-Salem. And if you haven't already, go pick up your tickets. We're going to be there WrestleCade weekend. Of course, that's right after Thanksgiving. WrestleCade's got a big uh, wrestling card set up that night. And at the conclusion of the matches... You'll be able to check out Arn and myself for the very first time, the very first live Arn show. And you can pick up your tickets right now at arnshowlive.com. That's A R N, arnshowlive.com. They're just 30 something bucks, but you'll get your chance to pick the brain of the founder of the Four Horsemen, as I get to every week. So make plans to join us in Winston Salem. And we'll, uh, we'll, sure we'll talk about this and lots of other horsemen business. But yeah, I agree with you, dude. I feel like, uh, it was, uh, it's the effectively the end of the horseman for a long time as well, because I think most people know that flair was using the, the head being slammed into the cage as a reason for him to cover up having surgery. The next day we would see footage of that surgery to open Monday nitro and a very emotional Tony Schiavone would explain what had happened in reality. Flair's getting a facelift. It's an excuse for him to be off TV. He's going to button heads with Eric Bischoff. And he'll spend the majority of 1998 off the air until September 12th of 1998 when Flair comes back to WCW. And once again, it's another fabulous Arn Anderson promo that brings him back. In hindsight, when you see that you you had this really special moment in television history that fans still talk about, the My Spot promo, and one week later they mock it, and three weeks later, Everything that your promo was about was for fucking nothing. And Kurt joins the NWO. Do you feel disrespected, upset, or is it just business as usual and on to the next town? Well, I just look at it again. I'm we're all Monday morning quarterbacks. You know, I look at it just here's the A and here's the B of it. A, horsemen have one night where they do the unthinkable. They upset the NWO in their match, in their town, in front of their fans, because that's clearly a horseman country town, no doubt. You go ahead and you strengthen that unit with those guys, which Kurt would have been able to do. That's your A choice. B, You have the new guy who ain't over yet, and that's saying that about Kurt Henning not being over yet. It feels stupid coming out of my mouth, but like I said, he hadn't been used properly. 
He wasn't hot at the time. To have him destroy Rick and walk away, now you leave his horseman, Mongo Chris Benoit, versus a triumphant Mongo Chris Benoit, Ric Flair, and the newest horseman, Kurt. Give them a couple of weeks to go out and say, hey, we did the right thing. Double A, you were right. He is the fucking guy. Now you have competition for not only all the baby faces and all the WCW guys, you've got somebody hot enough to work with the NWO where they're going to put some butts in seats. I ask you, if you're a Monday morning booker, which one looks more pleasant to you if you got to write those shows every week? That's all I'm saying. Yeah, I mean, I think it's sort of wrestling 101 to have, you know, if you do have the the heels come in and, quote, get the heat so much, you've got to have a comeback for the baby face. And effectively, there's no payoff. You know, there's no, there's no retribution. There's no return because uh, you're gone and Kurt's not here to save the day and, and, and Flair's out afterwards as well. So uh, what Winston-Salem was looking for that night, they didn't get, but... Hopefully they'll get what they're looking for. Wrestlecade weekend. Come see Arn and myself. Arnshowlive.com. Um, let's put a bow on this week's episode, man. Anything else you want to address or talk about with this famous MySpot promo? Uh, this is probably uh, the biggest platform you've had to talk about it. And uh, it's one of the most famous pieces of business you ever did in your career. You want to put a cherry on top with any last words about it? Well, I think I've probably vented enough on that subject, but I will say this. I was walking in around Harris Teeter the first time I saw Rick after his surgery. I came around the corner, and I said, my God, what the hell is Joan Rivers doing in Harris Teeter, for God's sakes? (laughs) Talking about having your shit stretched tight. My God, I'd say he had a facelift. Well, we appreciate the facelift that you've helped us give Westwood one here. We appreciate everyone tuning in this Tuesday and every Tuesday to R and tune in next week. We're going to talk about the time that he took on Joan. I mean, Rick, uh, for the first time it's of course, fall brawl, 1995 best friends across the ring from each other, man. After all those years in the horseman, it was, it was bound to happen. And it did, uh, the most nerve wracking match of Arn's career up to that point, you'll find out, uh, what Arn did before the match that he had never done before. And of course, we'll talk about that match and how it came to be. And of course, the fallout in great detail. If you've got a question about that match, you just want to prep for the following week or you get to ask Arn Anderson anything you'd like, throw us a follow on Twitter at the Arn Show and uh, tell your friends about the new show here on Westwood One Arn. You can find it anywhere you enjoy podcasts. Just search for ARN, not the Arn Show, not Arn Show, just ARN, and it'll populate there. Or just send them to arnshow.com. And let them know that it's this Tuesday and every Tuesday at 6 a.m. only on Westwood One. It's Arn. And we'll see you next week right here. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.